0: to the Tennessee World Affairs Council election 2020 project. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the World Affairs Council. Uh, Welcome also uh, Dr. Breck Walker, who's our moderator for this evening. Breck, good to see you. Great to be here,
1: Pat, thanks.
0: Tonight we will uh, welcome you to the second uh, in a series of special panel discussions of the key issues that American voters should be informed about as they head to the polls. We believe one of the things the World Affairs Council should be doing is to help prepare our community for this important function of citizenship. That's why our fall calendar has been turned over to this purpose in connection with the preparations at Belmont University for the October 22nd presidential debate there. We've been close partners with Belmont University for about 10 years, and we're very pleased to organize these programs in connection with their service to the community. So I hope you'll be with us for more of these programs, including watch parties for the presidential debates, as well as the election evening following. Let me also welcome our friends at the World Affairs Council of Harrisburg. They are joining us as partners in bringing you this program. It's a sign of the partnership of World Affairs Councils around the country, especially since we've been all pivoting to uh, virtual programs. That was uh, demonstrated by uh, a terrific two-night program earlier this month addressing COVID-19. Those programs, uh, along with everything else we produce, uh, are available on youtube.com slash TNWAC. Next week, you can join me for a conversation with David Rundell about U.S.-Saudi Arabian relations. Uh, David has probably spent more time in the kingdom as an American diplomat than any other in memory of Saudi specialist, and he'll be talking about his new book, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. That's on Tuesday. On Thursday, come back for Dr. Jeffrey Overby, Director of Belmont University's Center for International Business and a panel on global issues with Gary Garfield, former CEO of Bridgestone Americas, Dr. David Wickey of the Pew Research Center, and Professor Erica Owen of the University of Pittsburgh. They'll be talking about climate globalization and trade. Check our calendar at tnwac.org for details and registration and bring some friends. A quick note about your host, the Tennessee World Affairs Council. This is a unique organization in our state a nonpartisan educational nonprofit that works to bring you the world. Global literacy is our goal. You can find out more about our work on the website tnwac.org. While you're there, I invite you to become a council member and consider a donation to our tax-exempt 501c3 organization. The World Affairs Council needs your support now more than ever. With a suggested donation of $100, you can help the council continue to offer free and public programming to discuss critical global issues affecting American security and prosperity. Last thing about the World Affairs Council, we are a nonpartisan educational group. We do not provide endorsements or recommendations on the particle, partisan questions of the day, including the upcoming election. We encourage you to vote, but I hope you will find many sources of information to rely upon. The assessments and opinions of our guests are their own, and we're thankful they're here to make them. Leading you through this evening's conversation is my great friend, Dr. Breck Walker. It's my privilege to welcome him and thank him for serving as your chair for today's program. Breck, um, thanks again for uh, tuning in from the uh, the shores of the Gulf of Mexico. We we hope that things have dried out uh, a little bit where you are, and uh, thanks for uh, leading the conversation today. I'm. Looking forward to your discussions with uh, the great panelists we have.
1: Oh, thank you, Pat, thanks. Hey, I'd like to welcome uh, all of our listeners tonight to this second election 2020 panel discussion. We are focused this evening on foreign policy hotspots. Now, hotspots refer to urgent, threatening, and difficult diplomatic challenges to the United States. And the three spots we will be covering, Afghanistan, North Korea, and Russia, those certainly qualify. Ambassador Christopher Hill, one of our speakers tonight, has described diplomacy as a set of skills necessary to get people to do things that they otherwise do not wanna do. And we Americans will need those kinds of skills in abundance going forward if we're gonna make progress with these three countries. Now our panelists tonight are a foreign policy uh, literati, and they're going to lay out for each country how we arrived at where we are today, what our objective should be looking ahead and how a Trump and Biden administration might differ in their respective approaches to these hotspots. So I'd like to briefly introduce our very distinguished panel. Their full biographies are uh, on the TenWAC website, Uh, but let's start off with Ms. Annie Forsheimer, our speaker on uh, Afghanistan. Now, Ms. Forsheimer recently retired from a 30-year career with the State Department where she focused on security, rule of law, and human rights policy. Among many other assignments, she has worked in the National Security Council on Central American Migration, was the Director of the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Program in Mexico City, and was the human, U.S. Human Rights Officer in Turkey and then in South Africa. But most importantly for our purposes tonight, From 2017 to 2019, Ms. Forsheimer served first as Deputy Chief of Mission in Kabul, Afghanistan, and then as the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Afghanistan. Currently, she's a non-resident associate with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and she's on the Board of Directors of Women for Afghan Women, a nonprofit helping Afghan women who face domestic violence. So welcome Annie, and many thanks for being here tonight. Thank you. Ambassador Christopher Hill is gonna talk about North Korea. The ambassador served 33 years in the US Foreign Service, led the University of Denver School of International Affairs for another seven years, and is joining Columbia School of International Public Affairs faculty as the George W. Ball adjunct professor for spring semester 2021. During his time with the State Department, he was a four-time ambassador nominated by three presidents. He was ambassador to the Republic of Macedonia, to Poland, to South Korea, and in his last posting, he was ambassador to Iraq in 2009, 2010. He was a senior member of the US negotiating teams, first in the Bosnian peace settlement, and then in Kosovo. And from 2005 to 2009, Ambassador Hill served as Assistant Secretary of State, for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, during which he was also head of the U.S. delegation to the Six-Party Talks on the North Korean nuclear issue. He and I met last year in Nashville over dinner at a TenWAC event. Ambassador, welcome back to Nashville virtually and thank you for being with us tonight. Dr. Svetlana Savrinskaya is Director of Russian Programs at the National Security Archive at George Washington University. She also serves as an adjunct professor teaching U.S.-Russian relations and Russian politics at the American University School of International Service in D.C. Uh, Just as a quick aside, for those of you who are not familiar with the National Security Archive, it is a nonprofit organization that has done truly tremendous work in unearthing and seeing to the declassification of millions, truly millions of pages of governmental documents relating to the Cold War, and they also host and participate in conferences with scholars and key political and diplomatic figures from all over the world, all with an eye towards illuminating the history of the Cold War. I I encourage you to visit their website. It is chock full of information uh, and analysis. Uh, Dr. Severinskaya has been an integral part of this effort, especially as it concerns Russia. She is a noted Cold War scholar, writes extensively on the topic, and is a frequent media commentator on US-Russian relations. Her most recent book is entitled The Last Superpower Summits, Gorbachev, Reagan and Bush. Dr. Severinskaya graduated from Moscow State University in 1988 and eventually matriculated to Emory University where she received her PhD in 1998. And I'd add just a very quick personal note. I met Svetlana at a conference in Belgrade, Belgrade more than 10 years ago. I don't think I've spoken with her since. So my invitation to join this panel came completely out of the blue and she graciously uh, accepted. Welcome Svetlana and thank you. Okay, so let's get going. I'm gonna ask our speakers to stay within a 15 or 20 minute time frame to be followed by Q&A from the audience uh, uh, on that topic. And then we're on to the next topic in sequence. So let's start with uh, Annie Forsheimer, if we may. Ms. Forsheimer, Thank
2: you. just a, <laughs> Sorry. A, kickoff,
1: a, k- a kickoff question just to get you going if you don't mind. I've heard you speak of the very real accomplishments that we have secured in Afghanistan, accomplishments which I don't think are always appreciated by the media and the public at large. Would you mind commenting on those accomplishments and then talk about the current peace talks with the Taliban and then perhaps lastly, comment on whether you think our policies in Afghanistan going forward will be different under a Trump or Biden administration.
3: Thank you so much, Brett and Pat, and many thanks to the organizers of this important event. Uh, I have four topics that I want to go through before I can, uh, we can start a dialogue with the audience. And those are, where are we now? How do we get here? What's at stake? and what the current election could mean. And I'll give away, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll give away my opinion up front relating to the last point. On this issue, the two presidential candidates agree more than they differ. My own argument is that it's up to all of us to ask whoever is our future president to manage the end game of this very long conflict very carefully in the name of our interests and our values. So getting to the the point that you asked about, since 2001, the Afghan people with international support have made progress towards building a new society that is more prosperous and democratic, where women and men are more educated and in better health, and where Afghans are the ones fighting to keep their country secure, and not a source of terrorist attacks. And this is ultimately the progress that will make the United States and its allies and partners more secure from threats originating in the region. There really are advances that we can be proud to have helped bring about. Most importantly, of all these advances, American forces ceased to take a leading combat role five years ago. It's the new Afghan national security forces who do the fighting. And in 2002, that option simply did not exist. So here are a few more updates about what's happened since the end of the Taliban era. In other words, since November of 2001. From zero girls in school to three and a half million. From zero women in professional life to women who are teachers and doctors and business people, and even police. From the period of 2000 to 2018, this is the World Bank's figures, life expectancy went from 56 to 64. Infant mortality went from 129 per 1,000 live births to 63. And underweight children under five, that used to be 45% of the population had that distinction. Now it is 19%. And the gross domestic product went from 4 billion to 19 billion. It is still a very poor country. But think about this. Imagine 10 Afghans in 2001. There are no cell phones. Now picture six of them raising their hands. There's 59% of Afghans today have cell phone plans. It isn't the same isolated place that it was under the Taliban. There's a young generation that has gone to school, thanks to us, and they are ready to make their country a different kind of player in the world. And Afghans know that they honestly have all the responsibility now to move themselves towards sustainable development. So where are we now? Uh, As most folks are aware, the peace talks finally got started last week. And uh, the South Asia strategy of the United States, which was put in place with this administration, set the tone for the US role in pushing aggressively for peace. And in September of 2018, two years ago, a special envoy for the peace and reconciliation process was appointed, Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad. And it took two years to bring the parties to the table. I'll just note uh, in Colombia, another country I have worked on, it took two years for the pre-talks to lead to the beginning of formal negotiations. And it took four more years after that. So the talk started last week And what's happening now is that there is a side that represents the Taliban and a side representing the Afghan government and other political parties. On the Afghan government side of 21, there are five women. Uh, There's also an advisory council with uh, another mix of men and women who are sitting back in Afghanistan to give guidance to the negotiators. So what is the situation right now? There is still a divided political settlement of the government in Afghanistan after last year's presidential election, and there is still rampant corruption. Those are the weakening, uh, that weakens the government's negotiating power against the Taliban, which has a ferociously unified front. And shocking levels of violence continue because the Taliban haven't given up on, you know, what they might consider their plan, which is military takeover. That's the environment we face right now, but I think that the the feeling of the Afghan people that yes, they want peace, but they also want a constitutional order, that should strengthen the government's hands somewhat. So how did we get here? Uh, We got here in phases. And we got here unfortunately paying uh, too much attention to American political timelines and taking our eye off the ball where it was needed uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, And I can go into any detail that that folks may want about the different phases. But roughly speaking, we started and achieved a military goal very quickly. And that was the sort of period of 2002 to four. The focus on Iraq uh, did take resources away from Afghanistan and set the scene for the next phase that went through about 2009 where we still were under-resourced relative to the threat and the Taliban was resurgent. And that's when some of the most terrible corruption was taking place. There was a decision with the new Obama administration for a surge in troops. And I think it's worth noting for the final point that then Vice President Biden opposed that surge. Uh, That it happened, the troop levels went up astronomically, and there was a push for a military victory. That was followed by the decision in the 2014-15 timeframe, to move away from a US combat lead and as of 2017, to push for a political settlement with the Taliban. The war is at a stalemate and neither side, and that does include the Taliban can win. They control more of the countryside and the government forces with international support control the cities. So what happened to move us to this phase was a decision that we would give up military surges, and also that we would have a diplomatic surge. You know, Speaking to that question of what is needed now, intense diplomacy from the time that Ambassador Khalilzad was appointed until now with Russia, with China, with Pakistan, India, the Gulf States, Central Asia, Europe, I was still in the State Department as Ambassador Khluul-Assad was making his first trips around the world. And he visited every country you could imagine in three weeks three-week stints where he didn't sleep at all. And he started to knit together a consensus for the neighbors to stop interfering in Afghanistan and to start supporting a peaceful resolution. So what is at stake? At this point, moving Afghanistan to a peaceful and sustainable solution, uh, in my opinion, requires us to stay engaged in the country. That does not mean US forces. Engagement can be supporting the Afghan National Security Forces and staying engaged on development assistance as their economy grows. So it isn't a binary choice, troops doing the fighting and billions of dollars or nothing. There is another way of approaching it. And I think what's at stake are our interests and our values. Our interests are strong in that part of the world. There's tremendous energy resources, there are mineral resources, but there's also neighbors such as Iran and Pakistan and China who need a little watching and there are terrorists who enjoy using Afghanistan as a staging ground. There are also questions of values. We have come this far and it is, I believe, incumbent on us not to lose the gains that have been made, to honor sacrifices that also have been made and to support the Afghan government as they fight against a foe who has outside friends of its own. And again, that support doesn't mean that we're fighting another war, that we're continuing the combat role. But we do, in my opinion, need to support them. We don't want a situation of chaos that could emerge if there is another civil war in the absence of a peace agreement. We don't want refugees to start flooding out of Afghanistan as they would. And we do want to stand by an ally and a country that's worked with us and show that our word is, it means something. So the two candidates, as I said, they are quite similar in their approach. Uh, The president has been very much in favor of taking troops out. Uh, He is working on a timetable that involves giving peace some chance There is a worry that he has uh, two or three times very intemperately threatened to pull all the troops out, which of course makes the Taliban more intransigent at the negotiating table. He has asked uh, the military to show him the lowest levels that they can get to on their work of of eventually withdrawing from the country. And our troop levels now have gone below 5,000. Which is a very, very low level. Uh, it still allows us to keep an eye on the Afghan national security forces and as needed, to take a counter-terrorism role. The statement made by Secretary Pompeo this week is that they support that we support a sovereign, unified and representative Afghanistan that is no longer a threat to its neighbors, the. US or our allies. The word representative Afghanistan moves away from democratic, uh, which was the former word and is causing some concern that there will not be adherence to constitutional order. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we've reached a point where how we feel about it isn't going to be as important as what is negotiated. Uh, It's our support overall that matters. Now, Vice President Biden supports an end to the US troop president within his first term of office, except for those necessary to ensure we are safe from terrorism. He also has not made any guarantee that we would stand by the constitutional and human rights uh, enshrined in the current constitution. He is in favor of peace talks, but has no track record of having worked on this issue when he was in office. Uh, And uh, he did, as I said before, oppose a surge because he was skeptical at that time there was any kind of a military solution. I think it's important that he has a better track record of working with allies so that our future engagement in Afghanistan would be one that we share a burden with others. So in conclusion, it's very important that we ask the next president to manage the end game carefully. We have come this far. The end is more or less in sight, but this would not be a good moment to decide to withdraw troops abruptly or to withdraw, more importantly, or to withdraw the support that we're giving to the Afghan security forces. There needs to be a tapering off, some kind of longer term commitment to be a friend to a country that has really come through a great deal. And we want to avoid chaos, refugee flows, and a reason to have to return. Thank you.
1: Annie, thank you very much for that. Um, For anybody in the audience who would like to ask a question, uh, you can uh, send that in either on the Q&A Zoom function or on chat. But uh, Annie, I'll start off with one if you don't mind and let the uh, audience weigh in. So do you think, given your experience over there, will the Taliban negotiate in good faith? I mean, are they willing to subject their movement to the democratic process? And respect uh, human rights, especially uh, women's rights. Is that something that, that uh, in your view, the Taliban is capable of doing in these negotiations?
3: I, yeah, I, I don't believe that they have even promised it. So it may not be a question of good faith. They're not <laughs> claiming that they're going to do that at all. Um, they believe that they've won. They believe they've pushed us out and that they believe that that they have the right view of Afghanistan. Um, I know them to be wrong. I mean, I know that there are uh, many, many very conservative elements of Afghanistan who believe in some of the same things that the Taliban does. But there is no rejection of a democratic order. People support the Constitution and its guarantees of rights to women, and to minorities, uh, another group that has reason to fear the Taliban. So no, I don't think the Taliban, as it is currently situated, would agree to those uh, safeguards. But as I mentioned, uh, negotiations can take a long time in the process of negotiating and assuming that we stand by the Afghans during that process, the strength of the Afghan community's belief in those rights, that's going to be part of the negotiation too. And the Taliban will have to understand they can't rule by force people who, you know, they're not a broken group of people as they were in 1996 when the Taliban took over. They're better educated, they're healthier, they've got those cell phones, and they understand what their rights are.
1: And so, uh... What do you think is the, and I know it will, this will be something that unfolds over a probably a considerable period of time, but uh, what are you hopeful is the best and also realistic outcome here uh, down the road at the end of these negotiations?
3: What I hope for is a relatively long negotiation, you know, the Ireland... Accords, Colombia, uh, many other agreements have taken a long time to get the parties to move from their initial very absolutist positions to some place that they can both, uh, they can both inhabit. Uh, I do think the government will have uh, areas of compromise it must reach. I believe strongly that the Taliban must reach very uh, mm-hmm. deep compromises. Because as I said, they have to understand now how little of the country they truly represent. When they're not killing people, they're not convincing them. Uh, So what I hope for is a long negotiation supported by United Nations experts and the friends and neighbors who allow people time to come up with a new form of government, a new polity, which can be a peaceful one and a prosperous one.
1: Okay, great. And we have one question coming in from the audience, uh, actually more than one, but one from Towns Duncan. Uh, How many people are part of the Taliban in terms of a percentage of the population in Afghanistan today, would you say?
3: Um, Those numbers are hard to gauge. There are estimates of perhaps 60,000 fighters uh, in a country of 30 to 35 million people, Um, and obviously a fighter has a support system, Uh, they have relatives and they have sympathizers. There is one trustworthy poll in uh, Afghanistan that I rely on, which has been conducted in the same manner for the last 14 years from the Asia Foundation and they consistently show popular support for the ideas of the Taliban to be at about 10% of the population.
1: Okay, okay, great. Thank you very much, Annie, that was terrific. Uh, appreciate that, and uh, we'll circle back at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the evening tonight and have some summary comments, if that's okay.
3: That sounds good.
1: Okay, so turning to North Korea and Ambassador Christopher Hill. Uh, Ambassador Hill, if it's okay, just as a, just as a toss-up question, uh, could you give us a little uh, historical context on how we've gotten to where we are today with North Korean-United uh, States relations and uh, also comment, if you would, on uh, what appears to be a, a new strategy by the current president, new diplomatic strategy by the current president?
4: Well, I think the supply of history on uh, denuclearizing North Korea exceeds the demand for understanding it. But uh, I'll, I'll simply say that uh, North Korea has been interested in developing nuclear weapons for a long time, probably in the 1960s was, a first, was when they first expressed an interest. They made uh, progress through the intervening decades. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, They seem to have picked up the pace, and that was during the time uh, of the Clinton administration. The Clinton administration worked very hard on something called the Agreed Framework, which was to um, interest the North Koreans in light water reactors, that is, reactors that are more difficult to uh, turn into bomb-making reactors, and um, to, to provide those for for North Korea, in return for which the North Koreans would give up their nuclear program. Toward the end of the Clinton administration, however, it, it became increasingly clear that North Korea was making purchases that were uh, consistent with a highly enriched uranium program. The second way to make a bomb, you have one way, which is through a reactor, which by the way is a lot easier to see, you can, you can follow it with uh, uh, you know s- satellite uh, photography. And then the other way is to have these centrifuges. So they were clearly uh, interested in that. The Bush administration came in and said, we're not going to deal with people who lie to us. And the problem with that was it took some four years before the Bush administration realized that whether they lie to us or not, we're going to have to deal with them. So uh, at that point, uh, around the time of the second uh, Bush administration, a little before President Bush uh, agreed with uh, Jiang Zemin, the, Jap- the Chinese uh, Uh, president to launch a kind of multilateral process. And the uh, the animating concept was, look, we Americans, we can't solve this problem on our own. You Chinese, you say you can't solve this on our own. Let's work together and work together with the other parties. So that started the six-party talks. Um, I was asked to... uh, come back from uh, being ambassador of Poland, which I really enjoyed actually, uh, to be, I was ambassador in Korea. And then they asked me to come back from that and be assistant secretary for Asia, plus uh, have the hat of being the US negotiator. I told Secretary Rice, I'm happy to do that. She was kind of drawing on my Balkan experience. I said, I'm happy to do that, but I got one condition. I gotta be able to talk to the North Koreans. Can't have a negotiation where you don't talk to people. And this, by the way, is a bit of an elusive concept for some Americans on diplomacy. They think we can just growl at people and say mean things in press conferences. So uh, they uh, we engaged in a negotiation. Ultimately, we didn't get there. We got them to shut down the reactor, disable it. Uh, we did a lot of things, but we didn't get what where we needed. The Obama administration tried to continue a process of talking through this six-party uh, negotiating mechanism. Didn't get very far. And when the Trump administration came in, you saw that the North Koreans had made a lot of progress, especially in missile technology, but also in uh, in putting together some kind of nuclear device. And indeed, they they had during the Obama and Trump administration, some six uh, explosions, test explosions. And so the Trump administration came in. It was thought that uh, they've got to do something. And so the president, uh, who wasn't particularly interested in what the Obama administration had done, what the Bush administration had done, what the Clinton administration had done, indeed, it's pretty clear he never cracked a book on the subject, but he said, I'll take care of this. I can do this by myself. He went to Kim Jong-un, uh, sort of they professed to have this uh, love affair, but to quote uh, Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it, because it's pretty clear the North Koreans are not prepared to do much. And frankly, where we are today, we can certainly talk more about what President Trump tried to do in Singapore, what he tried to do in Hanoi, what he tried to do when he went up into North Korea and the DMZ. I would say the problem is very much out there and absolutely needs to be addressed uh, by uh, this administration if it somehow manages to get reelected or a a Biden administration. This is not an easy uh, process. got a lot of options, but we don't have the option to walk away from this. Uh, Breck, you need to unmute yourself there.
1: Thank you. Sorry about that. Let me ask you this, and just as a uh, follow-up, many people are out there saying that uh, Kim is never going to give up his nuclear weapons because they are essential to his own personal and his regime's security. And I think you may have a different assessment of that than... so would you mind sharing that with us?
4: Yeah, I mean, this is a kind of a line you hear all the time, that uh, somehow North Korea needs nuclear weapons, otherwise we're going to attack them. Well, we're not going to attack them. And we've given them assurances, and we're provided, we're prepared to give a lot of assurances that we're not going to attack them. Now, the North Koreans like to say things like, yes, but you have troops in Korea, that must mean you're going to attack us. In fact, if you look at those troops and and... You don't need to be some expert on uh, force deployments. Those forces are not there to attack anyone. They're there to defend South Korea as part of our alliance with South Korea. So the question is, is North Korea really worried that we're going to attack them? And I would argue they're not. I think what they're really interested in doing is creating a situation where they have nuclear weapons and a future president, whether uh, this president, the next president, or the president after that, will say, do we really want to have U.S. troops in a a situation where some pushing and shoving could result in the uh, threatened use of nuclear weapons? At which point, you know, maybe we wouldn't want to have troops there. And so maybe a future president will say, well, you know, those South Koreans, they're very clever folk, they can certainly handle their own problems. And so we would end up in a situation, which is, I think, the real goal of the North Koreans to get the U.S. off the Korean peninsula. And sadly, uh, this president, the current president, uh, said in Singapore that he would like to withdraw uh, U.S. troops from South Korea. It was kind of music to the ears of the North Koreans. And what we would have in that circumstance, and he was, I I think he's kind of coming around to the view, certainly this is the view that uh, John Bolton is concerned about. He's coming around to the view that somehow if we get these troops Uh, out of South Korea, North Korea will say, oh, they're not going to attack us now, therefore we'll give up their nuclear weapons. And I don't think that is the issue at all. North Korea is, uh, you know, these are not easy or pleasant people to deal with. Uh, And I think they have the view that they can use North nuclear weapons to help leverage their position in the world. It's a very poor country. They're not doing well right now. They have very serious serious economic uh, problems. Uh, they probably have a succession problem coming up because Kim Jong-un doesn't look much healthier than his father was. Uh, they have a lot of issues. Um, since Singapore, since we tried this sort of uh, uh, love affair, uh, incredibly enough, we've, uh, the real uh, result of this is that the Chinese North Korean relationship has grown closer. We've had a completely inadequate diplomacy with the Chinese. Our Secretary of State was uh, uh, had his feelings hurt when he went to China in the fall of uh, 2018, uh, and he hasn't been, pack, been back. Well, you know, this is a line of work where you have to have a little thicker skin than that. So we have virtually no diplomacy with China. We've actually created a circumstance where the Chinese are, are actually closer to the uh, to the uh, North Koreans than ever before, and I think uh, a new administration uh, its going to have its, its work cut out for it. I would say one other thing, people who say that, oh, North Korea will never give up their nuclear weapons, that is music to the ears of the North Koreans. And uh, often it comes from hardline elements, uh, that was a favorite a line from John Bolton, they'll never give up their nuclear weapons. Well, you can imagine the North Koreans say, well, we've convinced John Bolton of that. We just have to convince (laughs) the rest of them of that. So I think we need to be pretty stubborn on this issue, and we need to be very clear with the North Koreans that we are not going to accept North Korea with nuclear weapons. We have a lot of uh, uh, issues in the world, but this is one of the top ones. We have a lot of uh, ways to deal with North Korea, and I would urge much more diplomacy in the region. I mean, the idea of us leaving South Koreans at the airport, going up and talking to the North Koreans and coming back and briefing the South Koreans is simply not serious. It is not serious. And so we need to work with others. We need to really be press them to the wall in these UN sanctions. And frankly, we need to explore some of the gray area between war and peace that is make sure the the tests that they have aren't working very well. So we have a lot of work to do, it's a serious issue, and it should not be handled like some kind of reality TV show, which is, frankly speaking, what we've seen in the last few years.
1: Let me ask you, we have a couple of questions coming in from the audience, but let me ask one more follow-up, if I might. Uh, John McCain once said, uh, China is the one, the only one, that can control Kim Jong-un this crazy fat kid that's running North Korea. Um, my question, I'd like to know what you think about how important uh, or, or how vital China is to this. Uh, but but I'd also like to know, uh, is Kim uh, really quite effective? He is uh, crazy as a fox, or uh, is this way outside of normal diplomatic uh, negotiations?
4: I think, um... Kim is not crazy. I think he's uh, he's young and inexperienced. Um, I think he was astounded that President Trump wanted to meet with him. And I think President Trump essentially gave away the whole issue of diplomatic isolation, saying you can call yourself a president in your country or chairman, dear leader, whatever he wants to call him, but no one recognizes it. That was always our line. You know, we don't, you know, you can do whatever you want with those big parades. No one recognizes him. Now we have a president who just fawned over him. There's no other word for it, I'm sorry to say. So he feels that what he's doing is working. And uh, he has uh, cleaned out the military. He's cleaned out any succession rivals. And he did that in a very brutal way. I mean, he... uh, he took care of his, his half-brother with a nerve gas agent in the airport in Kuala Lumpur in uh, in Malaysia. Zero consequences to him for this type of brutal murder. He has executed uh, scores of, of leaders, often in these theatrical uh, Uh, episodes where people are are forced to come to the execution and they fire some anti-aircraft gun through the person's chest. It's not a very pretty sight. This stuff goes on all the time. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking to bad guys. And uh, these are bad guys and we need to talk to them. But I had a problem seeing our president, you know, it's one thing to talk once and sort of get the process going, after all, it hadn't been going for a while. But then again and again, introducing his daughter and, you know, this, this kind of show that we saw in the DMZ. Frankly speaking, our country stands for something and we ought to start behaving like we do.
1: Thank you. Well, one of our questions from the audience is, uh, uh, does China really want North Korea to be denuclearized at this point in time? Yeah.
4: That's a that's a very important question. I think there are a lot of things going on in Chinese mind about this. Uh, first of all, uh, I think in the U.S. we tend to look at China as sort of 10 feet high and they're about to, uh, uh, you know, eat our lunch on everything around the world. Uh, I would caution people a little on that. You recall in the 1980s, there was this kind of feeling about Japan, oh my goodness, they're buying Rockefeller Center, what's gonna to happen to the Christmas tree? The, you know, it's it was just the, the idea that uh, foreigners are taking advantage of us. And certainly that is the mood in this country about China. I would say, however, there's some good reason for being con- very concerned about China. We've seen uh, very aggressiveness, we've seen huge increases in their military expenditures. We see real mischief in the South China Sea that they're trying to turn into a Southern Chinese lake. And we're seeing kind of a crackdown domestically where Xi Jinping has moved very hard against uh, uh, elements uh, such as the Uyghurs in Western China. So there's a lot of reasons to be concerned. But getting back to the basic question, what is going on with Chinese thinking about North Korea? I think, first of all, China worries that if North Korea were to collapse and you had a single Korea, and South Korea would be and frankly will be the succession state, I think the Chinese are worried about the possibility of one. Uh, in the action, in the fighting, you, or in the, um, in, in the kind of uh, bedlam that might follow a collapse of North Korea, you'll get North Koreans uh, scurrying into China and they're worried about refugee flow. I would argue that's the least of it. I think what they're really worried about in the context of this terrible relationship now with the United States is we would put U.S. troops up on the Yalu River. You recall when we sold the South Koreans a radar, a um, anti-missile system called THAAD, Terminal High Altitude Area Defense uh, System. The Chinese were very worried about it, not that THAAD would be knocking off Chinese missiles, they're worried about a very capable radar that comes with the THAAD system that could look way into China. So I think they would be very concerned about US assets up on the Chinese border, a kind of strategic loss for China. Secondly, Uh, China has a lot of churn, you know, they don't speak with one voice, they're 1.4 billion people, a lot of different views, and frankly, not everyone is enormously happy with Xi Jinping. I mean, there are a lot of things going on in China. So if you had North Korea uh, go down and become a, in effect, a US ally, because it would be part of South Korea, I think the Chinese worry that somehow the the yin and yang of this debate between people who feel that China ought to be more like the West and people who feel it ought to be less like the West with its own model, that balance would be shifted. And so I think Chinese worry that if South Korea were to take over North Korea, this would hurt Chinese hardliners in favor of people who want changes in China. I think there are a lot of things going on. For example, Sunday afternoons, many Chinese go and, uh, go and put flowers on the graves of their, uh, of their um, uh, forefathers who died in the Korean War. I mean, don't, don't discount the emotionalism of the Korean War for many millions of Chinese. So a lot of reasons, but to me, it comes down to one issue. Do they want North Korea to have nuclear weapons? I would say no. They do not want that. They, they, China is happy to be in this very exclusive club of nuclear weapons states. They don't want to be joined in it by by North Korea. They know that if North Korea gets away with having nuclear weapons, no one can make a, a long-term bet. You can certainly make a short-term bet, but not a long-term bet on how Japan would look at it, how how South Korea would look at it, to technologically very advanced uh, uh countries. So I think the Chinese don't want it. The issue is how much risk are they willing to take to deny North Korea nuclear weapons?
1: Okay, thank you. We have another question. You mentioned earlier Kim's uh, poor health. Uh, Would you have any comments on if something happens to Kim, whether there would be a Some sort of orchestrated succession, perhaps involving a sister, or is it going to be turmoil? Do you have an opinion about that?
4: Um, There's no real history of turmoil in North Korea. You know, if you look at uh, Chinese uh, history, you see a lot of peasant uprisings, and then you see uprisings by various uh, religious cults, you know, like the Boxer Uprising, things like that. When you look at history of the Korean Peninsula, especially the northern part of the Korean Peninsula, you don't see a lot of that. So um, that could certainly uh, be the case. But I think what's very important to understand is there is no successor who's been groomed. Certainly uh, Kim's sister, who we saw a lot of during the, uh, during the uh, Olympics where she came from uh, North Korea. And then uh, uh, she was also kind of front and center during the Singapore uh, thing, I guess. Uh, She was also, uh, you know, very much part of that. They don't have a lot of history with picking someone who's very young. And, you know, frankly speaking, I mean, the United States has never picked a woman president. I'm not sure North Korea uh, is ready to uh, do that faster than the U.S. So, you know, there there are those kinds of uh, things going on. I think there is a succession problem. Um, which is why when Kim Jong-un appeared to be very sick uh, a couple of months ago, there was a lot of speculation how this is going to going to work. I will say, though, when when Kim Jong-il became, Kim, his father, that is, when Kim Jong-il became Kim Jong-very ill in the summer of 2008, he apparently had a stroke. We weren't really sure what had happened. Somehow they managed to come up with a succession strategy with, what at the time was pretty much of a you know barely thirty year old uh, uh, son who had not really played much of a policy role. So I don't put it past them to come up with a uh, with a succession strategy. They have managed it before.
1: Okay, thank you very much. We have another question from James Cottrell in the audience. Uh, asking if there is uh, a relationship between Iran and North Korea that also should be worry worrisome to American diplomats.
4: There is some relationship with them. Uh, I am not as concerned about flow of technology, although I'm sure there's some of that. Um, but the, um, you know, when you have the, the trouble with these outcast countries is they tend to find the sort of fellow outcasts and see what they can do together with them. You know, Iran is a somewhat different place. I mean, uh, we were all horrified to see the execution of that, uh, of that uh, uh, athlete the other day. Uh, And they do things like that. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's a 4,000 year civilization. And it's not to be confused with uh, the Democratic People's Republic of of, uh, Korea. So I... I think there's a limit to that sort of thing, but it does speak to the need, in my view, to try to, you know, have some kind of process going forward with uh, with Iran. And uh, I think, um, you know, in in diplomacy, when you when you get out of something or walk away from something, you can't always assume you're walking away to a better place. And I sort of wonder where we're really walking away to with uh, with with Iran. So. Uh, I would like to see some mechanism in place for dealing with their nuclear aspirations. By the way, unlike North Korea, which is proud about their nuclear weapons, I mean, does mock-ups of them in various parades, uh, uh, puts it in the Constitution. I mean, they they change their Constitution. They can change whatever they want in the Constitution. It doesn't require a lot of state legislatures to get involved, et cetera. But uh, I... Um, you know, North Korea is quite proud of these weapons, and it's gonna to be tough to, to uh, disabuse them of them. The Iranians, they've been willing to uh, do a number of things to take these uh, 10-year deals or 10-year uh, uh, limits that they reached uh, with the, uh, in the JCPOA, including with the US, maybe make them permanent, etc. cetera. I, I'm not saying that's an easy, prob- uh, easy problem, but I, I think you could get a handle on Iran Uh, a little easier than you can get a handle on North Korea.
1: Ambassador, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I think uh, we'll move on to Svetlana with uh, Russia right now. And if you wouldn't mind staying around, I'm sure we'll have a few questions uh, at the end of the program, if that's okay. Sure. Thank you so much. Dr. Savanskaya, gosh, let me me start this off, if it's okay, uh, with this question. It seems to me that American-Russian relations are as bad as they've been since, gosh, uh, the 1980s maybe, the early 1980s. Um, How have we gotten to where we are today and where do you think things are heading from here?
2: Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, World Council of Tennessee. Thank you, uh, Breck, for inviting me to this very important conversation. And, you know, to your question, uh, my Short answer is that I think that this period in US Russian relations is the worst since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this is dangerous. And we are very interdependent as nuclear powers, as just, you know, countries who have to live together in this world as big countries. So we here in the United States have to think very seriously about. What kind of policy we will have to Russia, and what I would like to do, because the time is so brief, I will give a little bit of a context of the current policy of the current situation in U.S.-Russian relations and how we got here. Then I will address the differences between the possible, probable foreign policies of um, two candidates, although they both are under severe constraints and um then in the end i will uh suggest some ideas some recommendations maybe so let me see where we are the context of u.s russian relations has changed drastically in um 19 in 2014 really it was a sea change it was the change of the entire framework and the sense of this relationship from the cooperation that existed in the 1990s then in the first um, uh, administration by uh, uh, george w bush and in the obama administration with the reset however we if we think back to what uh, came before that we should remember that there was this time when we all just ended the Cold War. And we, uh, unfortunately, both countries squandered the, the opportunities that the end of the Cold War brought. Recently, of course, really terrible things have happened. The Russian annexation of Crimea, the military support for the insurgency in Eastern Ukraine, um and just the most recent events uh, when we see in belarus putin's support for authoritarian crackdown in belarus the poisoning of alexei navalny a leading opposition figure but also at the same time if you look at the record of the uh, u.s administrations the trump administration it's the withdrawal from the inf It is the withdrawal from the Open Skies Treaty, treaties that are very, very important to the Russians, treaties that are generally important for the security, um, global security, and also the refusal of Trump administration to renew or renegotiate the New START Treaty, uh, the treaty that was concluded under Obama. Although uh, the Trump administration tells us that some negotiations are going on Um, it's not clear where those negotiations are and how much progress uh, is being made and we also see the growing list of sanctions on the russian companies that are close to to the kind of uh, inner circle of putin administration and on individuals but uh, with the number of sanctions growing it looks like um, Russians get used to the sanctions. And in fact, the sanctions do not produce the effects that they were intended to produce. And in some ways, these sanctions and the results, because they hurt the uh, regular people on the street, they build support for this uh, nationalist rhetoric by Putin. So then I would like to talk a little bit about why I think using the Cold War analogy is not useful. It's very useful and uh, I would highly recommend studying the Cold War because the Cold War has a lot of lessons for us today to learn, Um, including as Ambassador Hill said, you got to talk to your uh, opponent, you got to talk to your adversary. Look, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, even during um, Andropov years, even during Stalin years, we talked to each other. We worked together as two countries. And here in the United States, we have the knowledge of um, these conversations, of this history. Uh, We have a lot of documents for you to read if you're interested. But why it is not the Cold War? It is not even the new Cold War A couple of very, very big differences here. First of all, the ideological conflict is gone. We're not any longer in the period where you have the communist ideology uh, pitted against the liberal uh, democratic capitalism. Putin is very non-ideological. Russia today is nationalistic but it is guided by um, certain kind of uh, classic realpolitik, uh, geostrategic, geopolitical thinking. Uh, Russia is not exporting revolution as it did during the uh, Soviet Union years. And Russia is not even trying to remake anybody in its image. What Russia really cares about right now is security. It's this exaggerated sense of threat of opponents and adversaries kind of pushing on the russian borders and um, this this actually is historically very characteristic of russian strategic mindset secondly why it's different is because we don't have parity we do not have a bipolar world any longer Uh, the only Issue on which Russia has parity with the United States is nuclear weapons, and that makes nuclear weapons even more important in uh, kind of Russian uh, foreign policy um, instruments arsenal uh, because Russia lags way behind the United States in conventional weapons and technology, but it is still ma- maintains parity in nuclear weapons. Thirdly. This is not a Cold War because uh, it is not a global confrontation. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union had this big alliance that stretched all over the globe. And there was this constant competition in the third world for who can persuade, buy, or threaten a new country to join um, the Soviet or the American alliance. And now it's gone. Uh, Russia is a strategic loner. Russia right now does not have any friends, Russia does not have allies. It it finds itself in this situation of, you know, almost isolation, looking for allies, uh, willing to pay dearly for uh, some allies and friends, but does not have them anymore. The Russian model is not very appealing to other people. And um, I think that the, uh, the important thing here is that if we think about the new Cold War, if we use this analogy, it just, it guides us to focus on questions that are not crucially important today, because there are new, new issues today that we have to address, and Russia and the United States both have to address these issues, like uh, the pandemic, climate change, nuclear security. but. Um, as one of my personal heroes, Sam Nunn, Senator Sam Nunn, said about uh, U.S.-Russian relations recently, he said, the bottom line is, we are in a race between cooperation and catastrophe, and cooperation seems at best to be taking a very slow walk. Why? Well, Because in recent years, we somehow allowed the entire arms control mechanism to be destroyed. Uh, The United States negotiated with the Soviet Union on arms control throughout the Cold War. And even when there were practically no other contacts in other spheres, Cold War was robust and Cold War. Oh, I'm sorry. Arms control was robust. And I think it is the arms control, not nuclear weapons, that allowed for this very long and peaceful period of the Cold War. We lost also any channels of communications with the Russians. Military-to-military contacts are basically gone. Diplomats don't talk to each other. Consulate and embassy staffs uh, have been drastically cut in both countries. There is heated rhetoric on both sides. There is rhetoric which is very kind of personally disrespectful of um, national leadership of the other country. President Reagan would never call Brezhnev bad names, right? And uh, I think now we have much more of that in the public sphere. On both sides. There is also something in Russia that uh, did not exist there during the Cold War. There is a genuine, genuine, not just propaganda created, anti Americanism. So during the Cold War, of course, the official propaganda was very anti American, was very anti imperialist, but people were genuinely interested in the united states in the united states culture in music in uh, visiting the united states and they generally admired the united states i i can say from personal experience living in the soviet union during the cold war but now it's gone and uh well you would say propaganda certainly certainly there is a lot of propaganda but the cold war propaganda did not change that attitude And something happened today that led to this change. Uh, There's also, I can say in the American public, uh, there is generally suspicious and mistrustful attitude toward uh, things Russian and uh, Russian government and even people. But the most dangerous thing is that right now, both countries are implementing massive nuclear modernization programs and we don't talk to each other there is no trust it used to be in the cold war that the leaders had confidential channels had back channels and now it's all gone if a crisis happens we don't know where to call so what are our objectives our objectives i think now have to be pretty limited. Of course, we want to see a representative uh, government, a democratic government in Russia. Yes, we want to see a thriving civil society in Russia and we want to support the civil society, but our instruments are limited. And here I would like to talk about the two different approaches or possible, foreign policies um, of the two candidates. So let me say out front, I, I think that the Trump administration showed its record of dealing with Russia, which is nothing to um, brag about. Uh, the expectations that the Russians had of the incoming Trump administration were very high and you probably all heard about the champagne uh, being uh, toasted in the Russian parliament. And then that uh, changed to a total, total disappointment. Maybe President Trump himself had intentions to improve relations with Russia, but he certainly did not deliver on the most important things uh, that the Russian leadership expected. Uh, was which were the sanctions that are now congressional mandated, but the more serious um, policy that the Russians thought definitely would happen is continuation of arms control talks uh, just to the contrary, completely unexpectedly to the to the Russian policy experts, uh, Trump began pulling out of all the treaties that Russia deems very very important um the administration sends a lot of mixed messages the president himself speaks highly about president putin but at the same time he does not engage in substantive negotiations and uh certainly he is tied by congress but even within the administration there is no unity there is no coherent russian policy uh, the State Department uh, says one thing, but the president says another thing. And until the president approves of something personally, it is not a policy. So I think if um, if it happens, which I think is un- unlikely, that Trump will win the elections, uh, I think relations with Russia actually will deteriorate if there's anywhere to deteriorate. and it, um, it's really dangerous because we are so close to an actual possible unintended military conflict because our military forces are stationed so closely with the Russian military forces um, you know, in every part of the world. So one thing that uh, the Russians would uh, welcome if there is a new Trump administration is that Uh, The Trump administration, judging from this administration, does not care very much about democracy promotion or human rights. There is some rhetoric, but really it is very general, and I think Putin understands that they don't really take it seriously. Now moving to Biden. I think uh, although Biden uh, is irritable for, you know, he is an irritation for uh, Russians because of his emphasis on democracy, human rights, and democracy promotion, and uh, American leadership in the uh, liberal democratic uh, world, they are prepared to work with Biden. And why? It's because Biden represents institutional legacy of the Obama reset, right? And uh, the Russian policy experts believe that he might use some of these reset uh, themes without calling them the reset, but substantively he certainly will come back to uh, a replacement for the new start, renegotiating strategic arms defense treaty, maybe, Um, maybe negotiating on uh, intermediate uh, uh, INF treaty. Three very important treaties that Russians really care about. The New START, the Paris Climate Deal, and the the Iran Nuclear Deal. It's very likely, and I'm pretty positive, that the Biden administration will return to negotiations on these issues. In, you know, the two of them, Paris climate deal and Iran deal are multilateral. Generally, I think that there is a much higher probability of uh, success in U.S.-Russian relations, not on a bilateral level, but on a multilateral level, where the United States and Russia would be involved together in negotiating on very important international issues, such as strategic stability um climate change pandemic these are our common interests we have to address them together in a multilateral setting where russia actually usually is a good actor at least on these three uh, issues that i mentioned New start paris climate uh, deal and Iran deal uh, russia has been a good actor and that should be encouraged and if there are negotiations in the multilateral setting that the United, where the United States tries to engage Russia, I think there would be a response. And um, what can be done? There is right now uh, kind of a duel of the letters. There's been a very good letter uh, published in Politico, signed by Rose Garden Miller, Tom Graham, Fiona Hill, and over one hundred. Uh, Top-level Russian foreign policy experts, American foreign American experts on Russia policy, um, in which they call for uh, rethinking our Russia policy, and uh, there are a couple of negative responses to this letter, and I think this duel of the letters represents kind of the uh, the battle for the soul of the. Uh, Biden administration. So what I would very quickly uh, recommend is that um, the United States uh, should try to engage Russia in negotiations to avoid conflict. These are negotiations on strategic stability, just rules of the road, revive military to military contacts, revive diplomatic contacts. Um, Of course, we're concerned about the Russian interference in the elections, but to focus on that, you know, for us to solve this problem, I think we should A, improve the quality of our democracy. As uh, candidate Biden said in his article on Foreign Affairs, we should renew our democracy as the wellspring of American power. I think this is just a wonderful idea. Uh, we should strengthen our uh, election infrastructure and uh, make our electoral systems more robust. But by healing the gaps, healing the conflict within America, we we will become less susceptible to the Russian propaganda and active measures. Like George Cannon recommended in 1946, he said by making our system more stable and more appealing, this is how we win this conflict, the Cold War. And uh, I would call for some empathy. Uh, And this is really (laughs) very personal and emotional. Russia is much bigger than Putin. We hear this talk about Putin. We should not be, uh, we should not reduce Russia to Putin. Uh, We should look uh, at the country, we should look at the people and we should not lose communication with these people. We should try to understand really how they think, what is their, you know, what's in their minds. And for that, we need to train a new generation of Russia experts in the United States um, Academy. And I will end here. So in Geneva in 1985, Reagan and Gorbachev decided, uh, they made a joint statement that nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. And in February 86, Gorbachev at a a Congress of the Communist Party in Moscow cited Reagan's comment in Geneva. Reagan said that if uh, Earth was threatened by extraterrestrials, if extraterrestrials landed, we would very quickly find a common language the Soviet Union and the United States. And Gorbachev said to his Congress, he said, but isn't a nuclear catastrophe a more real danger than a landing of unknown extraterrestrials? Is not the ecological threat a big enough threat? So I think the aliens have landed because here in Washington, we had this very strange smoky sunset two days ago. It was the smoke from California, from Oregon. My daughter lives in California. She can't get outside. She can't go walk. That smoke came to Maryland. But today, the smoke is drifting to Europe. So the globe is very small, and we have to address these issues together. Thank you.
1: Spotlana, thank you so much for those remarks. We have a couple of questions. uh, One from your old friend, Tom Schwartz. uh, And we have about three or four minutes and then I have some other questions on Afghanistan and North Korea if we have time. But Tom asks, uh, why is Russia continuing to interfere in American elections or is this an action by Russia that's not properly understood in the West?
2: Why Russia is interfering, Uh, because Russia, (laughs) is a much weaker uh, member of this couple and has limited ways to influence the united states russians also believe and this belief is not just uh, in the putin administration but among the people russians a lot of people believe that the united states has interfered in Russian elections and has interfered in elections elsewhere. And therefore, they uh, don't see a big problem with this. Uh, I think it's not a new thing, but the level of technology is so advanced now. Also, I think we are severely exaggerating the actual impact of that interference. Uh, It certainly took place. But Uh, it's very hard to measure how that interference actually affected the elections and how it would affect this election. So there is part of the West uh, exaggerating it, not quite misunderstanding, but exaggerating.
1: Okay, thank you. And then Towns Duncan asks, uh, other uh, uh, other than dying in office, is it likely that Putin will be forced out of office in one way or another uh, looking forward you know a couple three or four years or very unlikely and if it's in li- if it is likely uh, who would be who might be standing in the wings to take over
2: um, that's a million dollar question uh, one answer is Putin will not be forced out of the office that's I think pretty clear but I might be completely wrong or I might be. Um, an optimist. I think Putin might decide to step down and uh, engineer transfer of power like his own when Yeltsin brought him to power, essentially giving him to the country and saying, look, this is my successor. I can give Russia to him. He actually said, I trust him with holding Russia in his hands. And nobody in the West objected because they thought that Putin would continue Yeltsin's policy, which he did in the first years, and nobody had a problem with this kind of transfer of power in Russia. So Putin might do that because he really cares about his legacy, and he doesn't want to go down in history as somebody who had to be overthrown.
1: Thank you very much. Well, Svetlana, thank you so much for those remarks. and. Uh, and answers to those questions. That was uh, super interesting and uh, I enjoyed that. We had a couple of questions come in on on Afghanistan that I'd like to swing back around in these last few minutes uh, and uh, ask Annie. And we also have one other question on North Korea as well, but uh, thank you so much. And there may be another question come in, so hang around a minute if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Annie, you're back on. Say we had a couple of questions real quick. Thank you for for staying around. one of them was, uh, in, in thinking about the Taliban, this is from Brian Smallwood, and thinking about the Taliban, uh, do you view them as sort of a monolithic force or are there factions in that organization that uh, have different perspectives on things, on uh, on certain issues?
3: Um, thank you, and by the way, thanks, both of the speakers were fascinating. Um, they are, you know, not monolithic, but they are highly disciplined. And so while factions exist, uh, we haven't seen much in the way of breaking of that discipline that could be in some way useful for, you know, getting to a different answer in negotiations. They they do have a little bit of trouble sometimes controlling local commanders who would like to either carry out policies that may not be the official ones or just make money.
1: Okay, thank you. And we had another question from Martin Davis who... Uh, wonders if the uh in what ways are the historical analogies of, of other nations that have tried to i guess uh impose their will on uh parts of afghan society and thinking in particular about the british and the soviets uh why is this time different why uh, is that not uh, a lesson that uh, uh that we probably are going to end up in the same place Lady-
3: yeah, there are huge qualitative differences yeah. in that both Britain and uh, the Russians at the time that they intervened in Afghanistan were neighbors. This was their region. And uh, and Britain was doing it obviously out of its interests in India. This has never been about us staying. And we have you know long-term interests that are the kind that can be accommodated by having an alliance. So I think that's a big difference and it's a reason why I think that a handover to a more stable Afghanistan that is uh, affiliated with us that has a great deal of chance of success uh, especially if stacked against the aims of the British and the Soviets.
1: Thank you. Now we have one more Afghanistan question then we have one question for uh, Ambassador Hill as well. On Afghanistan Amy Colton asked uh, where is Pakistan on its support of the Taliban? And how important is Pakistan's position to finding an outcome here that, uh, that works for the Afghani people?
3: It's a terribly important position. Uh, Pakistan has been the focus of uh, some punitive action by this administration and, and previous ones. Uh, and they've cut off some of the military funding and other types of assistance Uh, There's been intensive diplomacy, and there's also been a sense that Pakistan's interests will, in one way or another, be more accommodated than uh, the earlier versions of the endgame, in which the Taliban was truly defeated. In this case, if the Taliban have some position of power sharing, then Pakistan may feel like they got some of their aims and cease to disrupt the country, and I think Pakistan does not want those flows of refugees to come over their borders either. So they do have to understand the limits of this very dangerous game that they've been playing.
1: Okay, thank you very much, that's great. Um, And uh, Ambassador Hill, we had one one last question uh, for North Korea, and this will probably bring the the evening to a close, and thank you all so much. Um, This question is, there are lots of folks who uh, Are saying out there, look, North Korea is going to have nuclear weapons, maybe they already have nuclear weapons, and where we ought to be, and we're not going to prevent that, uh, the argument goes, and where we ought to be focusing our efforts right now is on trying to contain our diplomatic efforts, trying to contain the uh, type and number of weapons and proliferation of those weapons, that we ought to be treating uh, uh, North Korea as we would another nuclear power and enter into some kind of arms agreement with them. And do you have a comment on that position?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose we could throw in the towel, which is what that amounts to. Um, Look, uh, we are doing everything we can. And this is one thing where the Trump administration has acknowledged it had predecessors in preventing um, proliferation. I mean, this is really is has been for a long time a red line uh, for us. but just saying, okay, North Koreans, you can have a few North, uh, few uh, nuclear weapons and not a few more nuclear weapons, I don't think solves the problem. I, I think we have a situation where they have nuclear weapons, right? Or they have, they're on the threshold of having them. And I think it's very deleterious to our policies. I think uh, we would find that sooner or later, some president will not want to keep US troops there I think we'll cede a lot of territory in Northeast Asia. I think we'll sort of turn it over to China. I think we'll have weaker relationships there. Now, there are a lot of people in the Trump administration who don't care. They say, well, why do we worry about those places? They're so far away and, you know, they, I guess, play baseball, but not very well. Or, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who think we ought to withdraw from these places. I've always believed that the U.S. is well served by good allies. They extend our reach rather than limit us. Uh, They also uh, create a circumstance where we can, uh, you know, keep problems well away from our shores. And so to just give up on this and to say, well, you know, why not just accept that they can have nuclear weapons? If you give them to North Korea, is there truly anyone that you wouldn't give them to? I mean, this is really getting to the point where it makes an utter mockery of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And I know that China wants to be one of those limited nuclear weapon states. Russia does too. It's just that Russia's foreign policy on North Korea is overwhelmed by their desire to do anything that we don't want them to do. I mean, spite is the animating concept of Russian foreign policy in North Korea. But I know they don't want North Korea to have those weapons. So I really think it's a question of of turning up the diplomacy and uh, I don't think uh, what we saw in in Hanoi or Singapore was anything that I would call diplomacy. It was just a a reality TV show with our president strutting around with a dictator. So I think if we got serious and I think our country is a serious country uh, we can uh, we can deal with some of these things, you know, as they often say, uh, the United States will do the right thing after we've exhausted all the other possibilities. And I think that's uh, already happened now with this latest uh, effort with North Korea.
1: Thank you. Well, I'm gonna bring this to a close. It's been a a wonderful program. Great questions from all the uh, audience members. And let me just say for the past week getting to interact with the three of you and tonight getting to spend time with you has been quite a privilege. I've had a great time and I really appreciate everyone's uh, participation. So thank you all very much. And if I might put in just a a quick plug for the uh, Tennessee uh, World Affairs Council again, Uh, if you had a good time on this program in the audience, please consider uh, becoming a member or making a gift to support uh, our outreach educational efforts. But again, to the panelists, thank you all so much. This was such fun for me and uh, I appreciate your all's participation.